Turn with me to our first reading, our Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. Let's turn to our New Testament reading in Titus 3, 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done, uh, done by us in righteousness, but through His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now finally, if you look in your bulletins, you'll see on this page, we'll read together our uh, Lord's Day 8 from our Heidelberg Catechism, questions 24 and 25. First, question 24. How are these articles divided into three parts? God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Question 25. Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Well, as we begin this morning, um, I believe that it would be a helpful starting point um, to point out something in our catechism that we usually don't discuss much, maybe not just in our preaching, but also in our reading of that catechism, if you discuss it with friends or among yourselves in family worship. I want to talk about footnotes, that beautiful wor uh, world of the part of the page that you, we really don't usually look at. Um, generally, when we come to our catechism questions, these footnotes are at the bottom, and they're a helpful collection of scripture verses that serve as proofs for where the answer of the catechism question generally comes from in scripture. And, which for the record, are far superior than end notes, and whoever came up with end of the book notes should be locked up. Um, if you get where I'm coming from, and if you understand that reference, we can be friends. But many ran aside, while we may glance at these references every once in a while, we shouldn't miss the significance of these footnotes, especially in this question. And it's question and answer. If you look at these, every single reference to the triune nature of our Lord is, uh, is that in his revelation of who he is, it's in relationship to us. 
as a direct impact on our faith and life before his throne. The nature of our God isn't revealed to us in a dry theological treatise in some part of scripture that's just to get, needs to get out of the way so we can get to the good stuff, the practical part of theology. Instead, it's shown to us, it's presented with that we are presented with the deep and complex triune nature of our God in direct relationship to our faith. From Deuteronomy 6, in our reference this morning, where his oneness is revealed, it's in the context of who Israel's singularity of faith should be in. In both passages in Matthew's Gospel, God reveals his triune nature in relation to the sign of baptism, of faith, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which believers receive through faith in Christ. And in Luke's Gospel, when Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit of the Lord, it's in relation to the proclamation of the freeness of the Gospel. And in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, the Father, Son, Father and Son are identified in revealing the path to life through faith. And so on into Paul's epistles, referenced in those same footnotes. Again, while these footnotes may be helpful in giving a scriptural context for where we begin to see the majesty of our one God in three persons, let's not forget that what the author is doing with his words is just as important as what he is saying. And since we know that, the, that Scripture is the Word of God, therefore, as God is the author of what we hold in our hands this morning, we need to see that this doctrine is not meant for the top bookshelves of seminary professors, but for the daily life of the believer. But even more deeply, even more fundamentally, the structure of it is meant to be for the structure of faith of every believer in Christ. My first point is this, God in three persons. As we wade into these waters, let's be reminded of the words from the Belgian Confession, Article 8. Although this doctrine surpasses all human understanding, we nevertheless believe it now, though the, through the word, waiting to enjoy it fully in heaven. Our catechism this morning is one of the majesty and all-encompassing nature of our God specifically through his triune nature, and more specifically on his relation to us in faith. We could go down many rabbit holes, many different paths in our understanding and our, and our speaking of the Holy Trinity, but our catechism is directing us in this understanding of how it relates to us in faith, in our faith. It's giving us a direction here. Volumes and volumes have been written on this topic, and we could discuss them for hours on end. But this morning... Let's not forget the context of these catechism questions. Where do they come from? What was our catechism questions last week? It was on the Apostles' Creed and on the structure of that Apostles' Creed. That's what we're looking at this morning. That is the confession of our faith. Now, where does that structure come from? There's no hidden meaning in, in, uh, in the writing of our ecumenical creed. No underhanded gestures. There isn't some secret Gnostic truth to where these things come from or how it's put together. It's clear, and if it's not at first, the author of our catechism confirms the obvious in our first question. The Apostles' Creed is structured at its very core on the Trinity. 
while the rest of the catechism will break down each phrase of this creed, it should never be forgotten that the confession of our common Christian faith is predicated, is founded on, the triune nature of our God. In context of the overarching movement, question 22 doesn't say what should a Christian believe or what might or what's best for the Christian to believe. Instead, it says it is what must the Christian believe. This is the bare minimum. No ifs, ands, or buts. And at the minimum, belief and confession of the Christian and the Apostles' Creed the Trinity might not be there used in word, but it's there in structure, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, when we speak of what are the articles of our faith, how are they divided? We are, da- we are thrown headfirst into the complex but yet simple and beautiful triune nature of our God from the very beginning of our confession of faith. Because of this, necessi- this necessary triune, triune faith, we begin with recognizing that our one God has then been revealed in three persons. There, these are the uh, three. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are very truly, eternally distinct, with distinct properties and roles, but this distinction is not division. It's all, it all, uh, it all, if this all sounds familiar, or if you've, if you kind of are like, where does this come? This is coming from, once again, from Belgian Confession, Article 8. That draws this out. We can run, we run a fine line in our understanding, in our proclamation and confession of the Trinity on a careful and cautious balance between unity and distinction. Yet in this distinction, we see that the Father, the one who has created us, who has originated all that we know and understand, the Son as the begotten, who has been brought, out, brought about our redemption, who, has, uh, who we have encountered as the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit who brings about the work of the, Holy Spirit, uh, the Father and the Son, is intended to uh, and bring it to an intended effect of sanctification. All these work together, distinct yet unified in their purpose. Though they may be unmixed, they are intertwined in what they do and their work in the lives of believers and in the world. They are distinct in the relationship with one another. Each has a specific task. That's laid out in our articles. Yet, not to be totally separated. Their tasks uh, draw them more closely together. For example, of how this works, think of creation. The Father creates through the Son. The Holy Spirit hovers above the waters of the earth, hovers above the emptiness. They're all working together. They're not divided, but yet together. In the context of faith, as a triune faith, this Trinitarian revelation teaches us that this God is uh, is knowable, but is beyond our complete comprehension or our own creation. This is a God wholly not made of man, but something completely other. My second point, God in one essence. 
While our scriptures reveal the triune nature of God systematically, they clearly state his unity also. Going back to our very first reading from Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. As I've already mentioned, although we speak of three persons, they're not separate entities. They're not choosing to cooperate with one another when the right time happens or or when when it's uh, necessary for them, but are one God, one almighty being, one essence united. Returning, returning to that uh, original emphasis that I spoke about at the beginning, not to get too sidetracked, the Trinity in relation to our faith. Notice this, that although there are three persons, there is one essence, one mission. Instead of viewing our faith as being made up of three different components, we are presented with a united, holistic God and in turn, a united and holistic faith. As if we could speak of of separate creation and redemption and sanctification, while all these principles, or as our catechism puts it, articles, are distinct. They're not mixed. They're not fused. Yet, they are a complete whole, working together, united for one purpose. We must never go too far into the attributes of, our, of the persons of God and lose his unity and oneness. To lose the forest for the trees is deadly. Yet we must be, and while we must be extremely cautious of our theology and doctrine, we are cautious because we don't want to pit our God against himself. I don't know if you've heard these kind of sermons before, but the, kind of the idea of the rogue son who goes against the will of the Father to go save humanity from an unjust and angry creator God. This sounds like it's some kind of ancient theology, but it still is propagated in some churches. In order to make the Son seem more loving, make the Father seem more angry. To be too focused on the divisions of the Trinity, the the distinction in the Trinity, is to lose the unity and the singular focus of our God. Though he, uh, this is all for one unified purpose, to be, that he may be glorified through the redemption of sinners, that he may bring about that original goal, that original purpose, that he may dwell with his people in creation, perfected and glorified, that final day. In light of all this unity, Our catechism then leads us in asking a clear objection. If there is only one divine being, why are we speaking of him in three persons? Surely this just complicates the matter. Wouldn't it be easier, and especially for finite beings like ourselves, to just say one God, and then, you know, maybe sometime in eternity we can learn about the Trinity and and the three persons. Wouldn't that just be easier? I mean, because honestly, life is already pretty complicated. Although it is deep, and although uh, you might say, Matt, if it's really beyond our comprehension, what are we even doing then? That's an inch, that is a very real objection. If this is beyond our understanding, why are we even trying? What's the point? Well, I mean, very simply, our catechism answers that question. It's because that's how he's revealed himself. 
in his eternal wisdom and his goodness, he has revealed to us, even like the passing of his back to Moses, a glimpse of his glory in nature, uncreated, undivided, yet in three persons, distinct and unmixed. This is how he's presented himself to us as believers. This is the word of the Lord. This is what he has given us that is sufficient and enough for our salvation and his glory. If it's in there, it's there for a reason. What the author is doing is just as important as what the author is saying. Although this revel and through this revelation, through this momentary peek into the deep things of, the, of our God, we can see that a universal or a common Christian faith cannot be predicated and cannot be eternally tied to anything other than the self-revelation of our God. Our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In his word, he has revealed himself to us. We dare not believe that we can structure our faith on anything else, on any created form, anything less than the very revealed nature and character of our God. At the heart, the most common and most universal of our faith across the board begins with the triune distinction of the persons in one God, the Trinity. My final point. God of our comfort. Where does this land? In light of this glorious complexity, I want to remind us of the Belgic Confession, the words in Article 9. Furthermore, we must note the particular works and actions of these three persons in relation to us. The Father is called our Creator by reason of His power. The Son is the Redeemer and Savior by His blood. And the Holy Spirit is our Sanctifier by living in our hearts. This is the Trinity in relation to our faith. This is the structure of it. In all parts, in all movements of the story of redemption, there the Trinity is. There is no single part there is no crevice, no hidden corner uh, that is a our forgotten point in which our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not working on, around, or in our salvation and His glorification. This is the comfort we have in the Trinity and in Christ, in our triune God. He hasn't just found us already created and then decided to save us. He hasn't made us and then left us to our own to be saved on our own behalf like a clockmaker who just lets the clock run. And he hasn't saved us and then left us to our own devices. He has given us all that we need to live, to know him, and to grow in him. Instead, he gives us him self, his very self to dwell in us, to teach us, 
to reconform us and to recreate us in the likeness of his self, himself. Does our daily walk look like this? Does, this? does this truth of the triune nature and work of our God echo in our lives in a daily way? I don't mean that you have to, you know, pick up a theology book and read about the Trinity every single day. If you do that, okay, cool. But I think most of us, that would be a lot. But how could we do this and practice this in a very felt way each day of our lives? And I think a good place to begin is in prayer. I think a lot of times our prayers are one-sided. We can either be praying to God the Father or God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, depending on who we like need at that moment, who we're thinking about at that moment. And we forget in that distinction that all three persons are a part of our salvation and our sanctification. When we pray, we pray in the triune name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we baptize, it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A holistic faith, a wholeness in our lives of not just one part of the Trinity, but a fullness, the completeness of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christian, this should be the heartbeat of our faith. There has never been a moment in our Christian walk where you were ever alone. Because as it turns out, he created the story, he wrote the story, and he will complete the story. In his gracious self-revelation to us, he has shown us that he is just, he is the just, he is the justifier, and the, uh, the one who is going to judge our sins and declare a condemnation. But he also has taken that sin on himself in the person of Christ and taking that deserved punishment. And not only that, but then teaching us through his Holy Spirit all that it means to walk in holiness before him. Yet even more than this, even more than that, even though more that gracious wondrous beauty of salvation. He is also the fulfillment of all that has come before. He is ultimately and will be the fulfillment of our Christian hope. What are those last lines of our common Christian faith? The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. At last we see that just as our triune God is eternal, so the hope and final building block of our confession is upon the eternal. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, have this sure confidence that he who began a good work in you will finish that work. Our common Christian faith is founded in and structured on the nature of our triune God. And because of that, we have hope. Not hope in faith, but hope in our God. The Trinity is for life. As finite creatures seeking to plumb the depths of our infinite creator, we can really easily become overwhelmed. Where's the distinction? Where's the division? Where's the unity? Of course, we'll never find 
the depths of these truths or exhausts the majesty of our God, not now and not in eternity. But in his grace, our God has not only revealed his nature, revealed to us his true nature, but he has also given us enough understanding as finite humans to know who he is and to worship him as he truly is. Let us have joy in this, that our God, three persons, in one eternal true God, has given us enough knowledge and understanding so that our faith can be built on nothing less than the fullness of the Trinity. We are now given the privilege to spend the rest of our lives seeing, learning, and growing in our knowledge of all this and how it works together as true faith. Amen.